now go to the sermon this morning. Uh, it's, it's amazing. We're in the fifth month now. We're in the fifth month. We, we, we started back in May, and we said we want to look at the discipleship practices of Jesus. How did Jesus make disciples? Saying, okay, here's the prime example for us to look at how we make disciples, because that is our commission that was given to us. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Man's Tradition Versus the Word of God, because this is what Jesus does in this passage of Scripture. He puts them side by side. He wants you to, um, he wants you to look at them side by side and, and make some type of determination here. And I, I, I put this down. So in May, we looked at passionate prayer, passionate prayer. Jesus prayed. He taught his disciples how to pray. In June, we looked at initiating relationships and being in consistent community. He initiated these relationships with these disciples and others around him, and then he spent community time. He lived with them. They, they grew together. Third one, July, humble service and generous lifestyle. And, and we spent a big time here because he had to shift their minds. Their minds were to be very selfish he had to shift their minds to be very selfless. Um, they were always arguing, who's going to be first? And, and Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He, he flips a lot of things of their culture on their head. And we realize that that's the same thing that needs to happen in our culture. Many of the things that we uh, honor or glorify need to be flipped on their heads if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. In August, we looked at authentic worship and we looked at that with the importance of that we are true worshipers, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, and that our spirit is connected to God who is spirit, and also we worship in truth, truth outside of ourselves, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our truth is Jesus Christ. So we worship him that way. And then today is September and we start Bible engagement. And I can put another plug in there for the, the big event this month. One of the big events, but the big event is this word training seminar. That's going to be September 15th and 16th with Michael McKidrick. He's going to come in and he's going to help us go through the book of Habakkuk. And he's going to give us uh, some tools of how to study the Bible how to study any passage of the Bible. He's just taking that book to help us walk through. And I really encourage you to sign up. It's a Friday evening, and then all day Saturday, lunch will be provided for you. And then on Sunday morning, on the 17th, uh, Michael will preach that Sunday morning, and he will demonstrate that in action uh, as he goes through the final passage of that book. So I really want to encourage you to say, hey, I'm going to set that time aside. And, and out on the Welcome Center, there's a sign up there. Sign up for that. Great Bible engagement. So, first off, does Jesus use the Bible? And the answer is yes. Jesus uses the Bible. He cites the Old Testament at least 78 times. In the Gospels, at least 78 times, he cites the Old Testament. And I put down here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. Malachi, yeah. That, it, yes, the Italian. Okay. 
But you see that, wow. I mean, that, like that's a lot of the Old Testament. And then he refers to things in the Old Testament. So he refers to creation, the flood, circumcision, manna from heaven, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, prophets being persecuted, David taking the showbread, giving the showbread, the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon, uh, Lot's wife, Jonah is another one that I, that I forgot to put up there. So Jesus uses, he engages with the Bible. He engages with the Word of God. And I put down there Luke 24. This is a good example of this. Jesus has risen from the grave. He is on the road to Emmaus with these two, um, these two disciples. And in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what's he doing? He's engaging with the scriptures, explaining it to these two that were on the road to Emmaus. Then, when, or, then at the verse 44, when he gets back with all the disciples, he says it this way. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then... He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So did Jesus engage with the Bible? Yes. And did he want his disciples to engage with the scriptures? Yes. Yes, he opened up their minds so that they could understand it. So back to our passage of scripture. Um, just prior to chapter 15, it's chapter 14. And in chapter 14, just to get a little bit of context, John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus' cousin is beheaded. It's interesting that he is beheaded because he stood on the scriptures. He told King Herod at that time, it is unlawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. He stood on the scriptures, what the scriptures said, and that's what got him beheaded. The next thing that happens is Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So we know that there's thousands upon there that see this tremendous miracle that was done very publicly. Very, I mean, how many witnesses? All those witnesses of this public miracle of Jesus. Then he goes from there and Jesus walks on the water. He goes up in the night in prayer and then he sees the waters and he walks on the water, and this is when Peter says, uh, if it's really you, tell me to come out of the boat, and he says, come, and Peter gets out there, and he's doing okay, he was, he's wa watching Jesus, but then when he turns his eyes from Jesus, he starts to sink, but it is, what's interesting here is this one is very private. This miracle that Jesus does is very private. One's very public. This one's very private in the sense it's just the disciples, whoever was in the boat, and then the last thing in chapter 14 is Jesus has drawn another crowd together. So if in verse 34 of chapter 14, it says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let him let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. All who touched him were healed. So now Jesus has a whole nother crowd of people that have gathered up, and now we got the context of, the, of chapter 15, verse by verse here, verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem 
and ask. So from Jerusalem, from Gennesaret to Jerusalem is about 90 miles. 90 miles. Okay, 90 miles, three miles an hour if they were walking. About 30, 30 hours. Um, possibly eight hour days. So we're talking three or four days specifically. Maybe even more. Probably even more than that. To get from Jerusalem to Gennesaret where Jesus was to ask him this question. Well, you'd think it would be, this is going to be a tremendous question. This is going to be like the question of all questions. If I'm going to spend that many days on the dusty trail to get to Jesus, what's the question I'm going to ask him? Verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. That's the question. Yeah, I know. Some of you are going, what? So a little bit of context here. It's not so much that they were washing, not washing their hands, but washing their hands the right way. Because they, they had a tradition of the elders that before you ate, you washed your hands a certain way so that your hands were cleansed. It wasn't that you just didn't just wash your hands, but you had to wash them a certain way. Now, notice, no law of Moses said you had to wash your hands before you ate. No law of Mo except for the priests. In Leviticus 22, 6 and 7, it gives specific instructions for the priests, after they have done a sacrifice, that they wash themselves in a certain way before they get to eat part of the sacrifice that was attended for them. That was That's in the scriptures. But there is no scripture in the law of Moses that says that the rest of us need to wash our hands before we eat or even wash them a certain way before we eat. So what is happening here? What was deemed for the priests in a specific scenario, what did they do? They superimposed it onto everybody. They superimposed it onto everybody. Verse 3, how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus does this all the time. If he gets a question, what's he do? He asks a question. He asks a question. But in the question, he gives the distinction. He gives where he's going. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See the distinction between the two? That's what he wants us to focus on. There is a huge difference between the commandment of God and the tradition of men. The tradition of men. So verse 4. He says, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. He engages with scripture. He goes to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and 21, verse 17. And so he says, okay, here, I'm going to give you something concrete. I'm going to give you something from the word of God. This is commandment number five of the big 10. Okay, 10 commandments. This is commandment number five. That's where I'm going to draw from, from my argument of what I'm going to say back to you is in the very words of God. Verse five, it says, but you say. Notice the difference. We went from what God says to now it's, he says, but you say. You say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. But you say, and what happens here with the traditions of men, many times they morph into 
creating a loophole. We're looking for a loophole. And that's what they've done. What they've done as priests is we know what commandment number five is. Honor your father and mother. They have needs, take care of them. We know what that is. But they said as a priest, oh, but everything I have is God's. I dedicate everything to the Lord. Now they could still use it, but they dedicated everything to the Lord. So if mom and dad needed help, I'm sorry. I've dedicated everything to the Lord. They were looking for a loophole. And every time I do this passage of scripture, um, I, I cringe a little bit. <laughs> I cringe a little bit. Because in our society, many times we're looking for a loophole to take care of those that are our mother and father. Sometimes we look for loopholes, how we can shelter what they have or shelter what we have so it doesn't get used. We're looking for somebody else to fund the bill to take care of mom and dad. That's as far as I'll go with that. As I go, just to see how they were looking, they were looking for a loophole. They elevated man's law over God's law. That's the main teaching right here in this passage of scripture. Jesus points out, you have elevated man's law over God's law. What you say over what he has said. And you can look at this and say, you know, you can see the hypocrisy in it. You can see the hypocrisy if they if they say, oh, everything is dedicated to the dedicated to the Lord and it's only used for sacred purposes, you can see the hypocrisy because wait, scriptures say that a sacred use of that is to honor your father and mother, is to take care of your father and mother. You know, that's a that's a sacred thing to do. You can see the hypocrisy that's there. So here's the first main point. Man-made rules or convictions usually start out good but can morph into elevation of self over others. Man-made rules or convictions usually start out good, but can morph into the elevation of self over others. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so I've already told you many times, I came from a very legalistic church. Had a lot of rules. A lot of rules. And some of those rules I hold to this day um, one of the rules was how we dress. How we dress. And you understand, and I understood, you know, you wear your very best before the Lord. And some of you probably are nodding your head, yep, yep, yep. And you know from the scriptures that, okay, well, the scripture doesn't specifically say you have to wear your Sunday best on Sunday. Okay, but you know that there are principles in the scripture that say that we are to give our best to the Lord. And part of what we can give our best to the Lord is what we wear kind of thing. So you can see the connection that's there. But here's where it gets into trouble is when it starts to morph into me looking across the congregation at someone who's not as well-dressed as I am and starting to wonder, well, they're not as holy as I am. They don't understand, you know, what's going on here. And instead of now, what happens when you do that is it starts to distance you from that person rather than draw you closer in discipleship with that person. See what it, see what it can do? Let me give you another one. Um, came from a church, 
no one drank. No one drank at all. We knew the passages of Scripture. We knew that, you know, it didn't say no one could drink. Drunkenness is, you know, is a sin. But, but no one could drink. We, we knew that. But the idea was, is that if you never drank, okay, you would never be tempted to drink. Okay, that's the idea kind of thing. I, I still hold to that today. I've, I've never drank. I've never drank. But here's the problem. It can morph. It can morph into that when I meet a Christian who drinks, what would happen up here? I would question if they were even a Christian. See what I've done? I've elevated man's rules over God's word. And I, I tell you, it's a struggle that he is trying to help these people through. And even Peter, we'll see Peter here struggle with this. He's helping them through something where to identify when I've taken a man-made rule and I've elevated it over the word of God. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7, an exclamation point from Jesus. He says, you hypocrites. Exclamation point. So you know that he didn't say, oh, you hypocrites. Oh, you little people. No, you hypocrites. I mean, exclamation point. Isaiah was right. When he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So he engages in scripture again, Isaiah 29, 13. He applies the scripture to life. He says, your lips say, we give all to God. Oh, we've given everything to God. But he says, your heart is far from me because what is God's heart? God's heart is commandment number five, that you honor your father and mother. That you take care, if they have a need, you try to help with that need. You step into that motion, but they are not doing that. And it says it's vain worship. Why? Because they're teaching the wrong content. What they've been teaching now, it's vain worship when you're teaching the laws of men over the word of God. That's vain worship. How does they respond it in verse 10? Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. So now he pulls in the whole crowd. He says, I want the whole crowd to hear what I'm going to say next. He says, hear and understand. Hear means I audibly want you to hear this. And understand means I want you to take it into your heart. I want you to take this into your mind. I want you to understand it in a way that you, you it's no question what I'm going to say next. Verse 11 Jesus says this, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that makes him unclean. There's what he wanted them to hear and to understand. There's nothing that you put into your mouth that makes you unclean spiritually. But what comes out of your mouth, that's what makes you unclean. So, I, you know, I always got questions that go through my mind, is my religion, and I'm saying that in a positive way, not a negative way, is my religion an outward religion or an inward one? Is my religion just all about what people see on the outside, and that's what defines me as a Christian, or is it because what's coming out of me? What's coming out of me defines 
that I have an inward religion? Um, is it, it is not what I do, but what Jesus has done. Because I can do a whole bunch of stuff on the outside. Or is my religion about what Jesus has done on the inside of me? And so it does make us question our hearts. Has Jesus changed our hearts? Has Jesus truly changed our hearts so that what comes out of us is what glorifies him? Or have I just went through the Christian car wash? Yeah, do you get the picture? Yeah, many of us, many, probably for a time, just went through the Christian car wash. We went through the Christian car wash and we got all cleaned up on the outside. And we, and we changed our language and we changed this and that and everything. Everything that everybody sees, we changed. And so we fit really, we fit right in with everybody else. We did. And we do. Until you realize that, wait a minute, my heart needs to be changed. My heart needs to be washed by God. So verse 12, then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And I put up there, Jesus said things that offended others. And actually, that's such a fact of life now, is that when in our world that we live in today, anytime that you give the word of God, it's going to offend people. It's going to offend them. Because the truth offends. So the question here, though, is how does Jesus respond to this revelation that, that, um, that what he has just said has offended some people. How is he going to respond to it? Is he going to go, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't mean that. Well, qualifier, you know, do all this kind of stuff. No, he doesn't. He doubles down. Verse 13, when he says, he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. He doesn't back away from it. He actually says judgment, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for those who do not follow after God. He doesn't back away from the offense. He wants them to know the truth. And, and you could go back, I put the scripture passages up there. You could go back to the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. And if you read through that, 24 through 30, you're going to see the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, are growing up together, and he says at the end of that, the, the, at the harvest, at the harvest, the, the wheat is going to be taken into my barn. That's the desired place to be. The weeds are going to be bundled up and burned. And then in verses 36 through 43, he walks through it specifically with his disciples so they understand every element of that parable to be able to reiterate again that there is a judgment that is coming. And then at the end of that, back to our passage, Jesus says to his disciples, leave them. They are blind guides. That's a very strong command he gives to them. Leave them. And then he just gives uh, like a saying, if a blind man leads a blind man, both fall into a pit. This is just a little logical saying, he said. It's just logical. If a blind man is leading a blind man, and both will fall into a pit. What's he trying to get across there? Is that don't follow blind men. You need to be following someone whose eyes have been open that they see that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? 
We need to follow someone whose eyes have been opened to say, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. Verse 15, Peter says, explain the parable to us. <laughs> Peter doesn't, he, is, he doesn't get it. Um, and he struggles with this, just like I struggle with it. Okay? He struggles with this. In Acts chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus, or God brings down that blanket with the clean and the unclean. And God says to him, get up and eat. And Peter goes, uh-uh. Uh-uh, I ain't gonna do, I've never done that. And then he takes him to Cornelius' house, and he realizes that, wait a minute, wait a minute. What God has made clean is clean. And then, later on in Galatians, he's with Paul. And he's been with Paul for a while, and they've been ministering to the Gentiles. And Gentiles have been becoming Christians, and they're eating together and everything. But then some of the Jewish Christians come from Jerusalem, and what does, what does Peter do? He backs away. He backs away from making a little distance between him and the Gentile Christians. And what does Paul do? What are you doing? What are you doing, Peter? What's going on here? You know, you know that there is no justification in following the law. The only justification comes in Christ alone. See, Peter was struggling with this. He grew up with a, in, a, in a society with all these different rules that were attached to being holy. So Peter says, explain the parable to us. Verse 16, are you so, so, so dull or lack of understanding, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? Okay, he's talking about what's physical. Remember this from last week. He's talking about something physical. There's the digestive system. And it's supposed to go one way, hopefully. Ugh, we hate it when it goes two ways. But one way, right? Okay. But then he goes to the spiritual. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. It made me think of the respiratory system. Okay, so it's the same mouth. It's the same mouth that takes in food and all the way through, right? But it's the same mouth that can take in oxygen. It goes into your lungs. You use it. It expels. It comes out. It's two-way. It comes out, but when it comes out, it can be used by the vocal cords that are controlled by what's going on up here and can do some horrendous damage. And so what does he do? He gives us a list. Here's the list. Verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Does the food track produce these? No. But evil thoughts, that's the destruction of loving others. Murder is the destruction of human life. Adultery is the destruction of the marriage covenant. Sexual immorality is the destruction of God's created purity. Theft is the destruction of sharing. False testimony is the destruction of the truth and integrity. And slander is the destruction of encouragement. All of these things come out of the mouth. And make a man unclean. That's what he said in verse 20. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. It's not the food. It's not the washing of the hands. It's the condition of the heart. And it brings us back to this. Have, have you been, has your heart been washed? Has your heart been washed? Now we know from the scripture there's an initial wash. And then there's some subsequent washes. 
And I pull that from when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And the scene there is he comes to Peter. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm going to wash your feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, well, then wash all of me, head to toe. And Jesus responds back and says, uh, no, everyone who has had a bath, everyone who has had a bath only needs their feet washed. If you look at that spiritually, everyone who has been saved had a bath, been saved, but at times you need your feet washed. There are subsequent washings that need to be happening. And we are continually washed by the word of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're reading God's word, he's going to continually bring up by the Holy Spirit different things where your feet need to be washed. And the way they're washed is through confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. The confession is the Christian's bar of soap. And it needs to be utilized. And, and I think this is where the Bible engagement comes in in this passage of Scripture. Because here these, these Pharisees have found a loophole, or they created a loophole. They've created a loophole. Jesus has pointed out, wait, that's wrong. Commandment number five, shouldn't be doing that. And here's the Bible engagement, is what they should have done is confessed. They should have said, I have sinned. Because confession is the first step. Okay, expose more of myself here. Long time ago, long time ago, I clicked too many clicks on a computer. And I saw some things I should not have seen. And when I did that, it threw me into a world that it took a while to get out of. But the only way out of that world the first step is I had to confess. I had to confess to Almighty God and I had to confess to my wife. That was, that was the only, that's the first step to getting out of that world. Where do I get that instruction from? I get it from God's word. God tells us to do that. Another one, because I lived in this legalistic culture, um, what happens in a legalistic culture is spiritual pride grows very well, <laughs> very well. So I could tell you on, on less than one hand how many times I had ever said a swear word on one hand. And, and you know from some of the stories I've told, my list of swear words is a lot longer than yours because I couldn't even say the words that were replacing the other words. I couldn't say those either. So I, and I was really good at it. I was really good. I was really self-controlled kind of thing that those words did not come out of my mouth. They didn't come out of my mouth. But you know where they ran? Right up here. And every, every time something would happen to me, I tell you, up in my head, I would say every single one of those words. And they would just run rampant. But they never came out of here. So it's okay, right? It's okay. No, it wasn't okay. Because that kind of ruled everything in my life. And the only way out of that, I had to confess to my Heavenly Father. And then at that time, I was, I was a teenager, preteen and teen, when I was walking through that, and I had to confess to my mom and dad. 
I had to go to my mom and dad and say, I am so struggling with this that I know I'm not saying it out loud, but in my mind, I am saying every one of those words applied to whatever the situation was. And I don't know when it happened. I can't remember when it happened exactly, but I do remember there was a time when something happened and I dealt with the situation that was there. And then afterwards I realized there were no words. The words were gone. God had taken the words away and everything those words meant. Victory over that. I give all the glory to God. But again, where did it start? It started with confession. Started with confession. Okay, now let me tell you a story about Stephanie. No, that is just a that was just a break up the let me end with this. And worship team come on back up um, at this time. So we've talked about these three M's uh, that came out of the transition team or these three things that we have held on to to hold us as we go forward. And the first one is our motive is love, is that we hold on to that, that we are commanded to love God and love others and, and for this to be a guide for us. But in this passage of scripture, their motive was a loophole. I want you to see them side by side. Their motive was a loophole. This is a way that I can not love my mother and father. Our message is Jesus. Our message is Jesus. It's, it's, it's who we talk about. It's who we point to. It's, it's who our guide is. Their message was Jurgens. I had to find a J that was a soap kind of thing. Yeah, isn't that kind of funny? That's funny. But I, I, that took a long time. Their message was Jurgens. Their message was, are you washing your hands the right way? That's what their message, they traveled 90 miles to ask that question. We got to make sure our message is Jesus, not Jurgens. And then the third one, our method is discipleship. Discipleship is to walk alongside of others. Their method was, how can we show that there's a distance between us and them? See them side by side. The ways of man, the ways of man are to find a loophole, to focus on Jurgens, and, and to make distance between self, each other. The ways of God are to love one another and love God. The ways of God are to raise up his son, Jesus Christ, in his rightful place on the cross, in an empty tomb. And the ways of God is that his family, we're all family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. His family walks together with one another as we. It's not a us and them. It's a we. The ways of the world is how do I distinguish myself from other people in some way, shape, or form. I pray that this passage has been a help this morning. And um, this, this song is one we haven't done, is it? Yeah. So, so you can sit right there and even listen to the song as it's being played. But I do want to give you an opportunity this morning that if there's the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart and said, um, I want to wash your feet. I want to wash your feet, but you're, you haven't allowed me to. 
because you haven't confessed. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. The first step is to confess to Almighty God, I have sinned. I have sinned. And then most likely after that confession might come another confession, especially to the person or people around you that where maybe it has affected them or you need their help. You need their help. You need them to know that you have confessed and that they can walk alongside of you. So as they sing the song this morning, in closing, I want you to feel free to take this time to have the Holy Spirit wash your feet if necessary. Now, if you're someone who, who says, I want somebody to pray with me, then you come forward. Come forward and kneel because I'll, I'll pray with anybody who comes forward and we'll pray together about what you're bringing before the Lord, okay? Understand? Aaron, thank you.